Our scripture passage this morning is from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 13, the whole chapter. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13. The passage will be up on the screen. If you have a Bible, we would encourage you to pull it out and follow along with us. 1 Corinthians, all of chapter 5. If you are able to stand, please stand for the reading of and the honoring of God's word. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity in truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, as you know better than us, this is one of the heavier passages in this letter, and indeed, probably in the New Testament. Uh, and so, Father, we do ask for abundant grace and the provisions that we need to hear this text. Um, soften our hearts, Lord, so that we might receive this um, with faith, trusting that you have our best interest in mind. We love you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Too bad it's not Valentine's Day because this morning we're talking about love. I wish I had brought some of those little dove chocolates. I would have just like scattered them out here in the congregation for effect. You know, Chipper, you must be talking about 1 Corinthians 13, right? You know, love is patient, love is kind. Uh, surely you're talking about that passage, right? You're getting older, you're in your late 30s now, you're having one of those, those days. No, I really am talking about 1 Corinthians chapter 5. A love passage that might be the most nonsensical passage in this letter to our contemporary ears. Because this love passage is also a discipline passage, a combination that is like nails on a chalkboard to individualists. 
I mean, a, a community with the authority to expel someone from their midst. And somehow this is a means of loving the community and loving the person being expelled. What? Aren't churches above all supposed to be communities of inclusion and encouragement? But not all of the consternation has to do with our enthusiasm for individualism and self-expression. It's also related to another very powerful, very Western contemporary habit, the habit of celebrating the love of God far more than the holiness of God, even though those two attributes should always stand together and inform the way that we understand each. And since the people of God are to be emissaries of God who represent his character, albeit imperfectly, de-emphasizing God's holiness corrodes our concern for our own holiness as the church of Jesus Christ, which, as we're going to see, makes church discipline feel about as natural as the retention pond behind your apartment. So we have some serious work to do this morning in pursuit of understanding the wisdom of God and prescribing discipline for local church communities when necessary. But then again, this is a love sermon, isn't it? Isn't that what we said? And I'm actually quite serious when I say that my prayer for all of us is that we would leave this room with greater affections for God and his people. Wouldn't that be something? Usually, traditionally, I try to take a passage of the Jesus Storybook Bible and use it in a sermon, but you can understand that that was not possible for this sermon. So you'll have to work with me. Two reflections this morning. Number one, we're going to talk about the purpose of discipline, and then secondly, the, the practice of discipline. And I will warn you, we're going to spend almost all of our time talking about the purpose of discipline and just a minimal amount of time on the practice, but we will have space in other places to flesh it out more in God's providence. So let's start with that first reflection, the purpose of discipline. Chapters 1 through 4 the Apostle Paul was mainly concerned with factionalism and the nature of spiritual leadership. Here in chapter 5, he begins a new discourse within this letter related to moral improprieties that were becoming increasingly common in the life of the Corinthian church. And boy, was he aghast. Look at verses 1 and 2. It is actually reported, in other words, like, I, I can't even, that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, probably indicating his stepmom. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Corinthians, everybody agrees that sleeping with your stepmom is morally impermissible, doesn't matter one bit that she's not your biological mom, even the pagans, that is, non-believers, they agree with me here. And as you know, they are, in many respects, morally licentious. And yet, a member of your own church has his father's wife. And instead of mourning this sin as a community and confronting it by removing the offender, you are carrying along pridefully as if everything is just fine. We're going to talk more about 
sexual ethics when we make our way to the second half of chapter 6, which will be in mid-January due to our forthcoming Advent series. So for now, I'm just going to make a very brief observation based on the text of verses 1 and 2. However we understand the nature of what Paul has in mind when he refers to sexual immorality, it has to mean something. Especially in the past 40 years, it has become very popular to scrutinize Paul's use of the, use of the term porneia, which is the Greek word translated sexual immorality, almost to the point of meaningless, almost to the point of that term becoming basically a shell term. But clearly, there were and there are various kinds of real sexual immorality, verse 1, some of which were at odds with common pagan practices, making Christians seem culturally strange in the eyes of outsiders, some of which even the pagans were like, yeah, that's a thumbs down from us as well. And clearly, the immorality of these actions had to do with more than just power dynamics within a sexual relationship which is quickly becoming the only sexual ethic of our day. As long as there isn't some kind of power imbalance, as long as someone isn't taking advantage of someone else, your sexual relationship is surely good to go. All of which means that if we constantly revise our sexual ethics to accommodate cultural norms, we will eventually find ourselves in a position in which it is no longer tenable to claim Christ and the authority of his word while keeping pace with cultural norms and the name of being inclusive and not causing offense. Eventually, we will be required to render a term like porneia meaningless, even though it is nothing of the sort. We may think that we can get away with a really sophisticated balancing act in which we're able to explain certain things away and say things like, well, we can't really be sure if Paul meant, you know, fill in the blank, or he probably didn't mean, but the ground beneath us, I am telling you, will continue to erode until the day comes in which we are asked to green light virtually everything, even though that posture is biblically indefensible. Case in point, the Corinthians, who pridefully believed that they were so sophisticated and so balanced that they ended up condoning grievous sexual immorality in a manner that actually outpaced their pagan neighbors. So Paul, even though he was physically absent at the time, took action personally and exhorted the Corinthians to do the same, verses 3 through 5. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Why these actions? Because people were getting hurt. That's why. And when people are getting hurt, or even just in danger of getting hurt, spiritual fathers act because they love their spiritual sons and daughters. And when people are getting hurt or in danger of getting hurt, spiritual communities act 
Because local churches are communities of Christ followers who are committed to one another in a spirit of mutual love and sacrifice. And notice that all of these actions, they are not arbitrary. They are addressing the specific kinds of damage caused by this man's immorality. Consider the outsiders, those in Corinth who are not associated with the church. Word about this man's behavior had clearly gotten around Corinth, and even to Paul, think about this, all the way in Ephesus, case in point of language, it is actually reported. Everybody knew what was going on. So by pronouncing judgment, verse 3, Paul signaled to the church community and to outsiders that this man's behavior does not represent Christ. And Paul exhorted the church to publicly back his judgment by removing the man from their fellowship. Verse 2, leave the sin alone, do nothing, take a passive approach. And outsiders could very justifiably ask, is this Christ? Is this what all of you stand for? And perhaps, think about this, perhaps they might dismiss Christ and the gospel accordingly. And then what about the, what about the church itself? Recall from chapter 1, verse 3, that believers in the household of God and the church at Corinth or in any other church, and track with me here, this is really important, they are sanctified by God in union with Jesus Christ. God, by his grace, gives his people this status as a holy, set-apart people because he himself is the holy, set-apart God of the universe. And then God commands us to live holy lives in keeping with our status, which includes managing the integrity of, of our spiritual community by purging anything that is evil. And this is by no means a new idea that appears out of thin air in the Pauline epistles. Again and again, God commanded the Israelites, his chosen, set-apart people, to confront and to deal with sin in order to preserve their corporate holiness as a nation. So the holy, set-apart Church of Jesus Christ is simply maintaining that same posture. Thus, Paul's warning in verses 6 through 8 that your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Leave sin alone, and that little bit of leaven eventually affects the entire lump of dough that is the church. And as the little bit of fermented dough affects the chemistry of the entire lump, this unmortified, unconfronted sin, it smears the name of Christ, it compromises the theological integrity of the church, it introduces moral disorientation. It puts those who are participating in the sin in danger of eternal condemnation. And it causes untold harm to those who are affected by the sin and being sinned against. 
the alternative, the only alternative, there is no third, you know, kind of sophisticated way, is to cleanse the old leaven of sin from the house of God, just as the Israelites cleanse their homes from leaven. See Exodus chapter 12 before keeping the Passover feast. And as it turns out, the church of Jesus Christ keeps the feast as well. Because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. This is where the the preaching kind of gets started. God provided unblemished young male lambs for a sacrifice so that the Israelites might paint the blood of these lambs on their wooden doorposts and live, death passing over their household. But the Father has given us a far greater lamb. Jesus, the Son of God, was slaughtered so that on account of his blood, ultimately smeared upon a wooden cross, the death we deserve for our sin might pass over the household of God. And in the place of death, the people of God, those who believe upon the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John chapter 1, they gain life everlasting as a holy set-apart people of God. And then we confirm our holy status by living holy lives, celebrating what Christ has done for us with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth cleansing our home of all moral impurity and cleansing our home of those who persist in embracing those impurities. Thus, see verse 13, the appropriation of a recurring cadence found in the book of Deuteronomy, a cadence originally directed to the Israelites, that the Corinthian believers should purge the evil person from among you. For the Israelites, this basically meant death. You can check out the book of Deuteronomy for yourself. But for the Corinthians under the new covenant, this meant expulsion from church membership and along with that disqualification from participating in the Lord's Supper, that is, communion. And what about this man's father and stepmom? The shame brought upon the father was off the charts. I mean, seriously, imagine how you would feel. And the same was probably true on some level for the stepmom, since the man who had her had way more agency to pursue her, according to the cultural standards of that day, which explains why this passage puts him in the moral crosshairs. Do you see that? And even if she welcome the affair, which may have been the case, it's hard to know, grave harm was still being done to her since willing, ongoing participation in any kind of immorality always rots our souls. So if a professing follower of Christ is mistreating his father and stepmom so egregiously and thinks nothing of it, perpetuating this harm again and again and again, You want to intervene? How could you possibly just let this fester? Which means that, short of repentance, eventually you kick this man out of your fellowship, praying 
that God in his mercy would use this eviction to give him a serious spiritual wake-up call for the sake of ending the immoral behavior, catalyzing repentance, and safeguarding those who are being harmed. And what about the immoral man himself, whose very soul would appear to be in danger? In expelling this man from the fellowship, you are, verse 5, Paul says to the Corinthians, delivering this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that, check this out, his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Deliver this man to Satan appears to be very intense, alternative way of saying remove him from the church something like go ahead and give this person what he appears to desire free reign to worship satan in keeping with the satan worshiping actions go ahead and hand him right over to that and the idea is that in doing so he would reap the consequences of his fleshly living eventually come to the end of himself, that he might cry out to God for help in putting to death the deeds of the flesh by the power of the Holy Spirit, that he might truly live, Romans chapter 8, verse 13. So yes, we want to end the behavior. Yes, we want to end the harm that it's causing. But we also want, by God's grace, to restore the man himself. We still care about this man and his standing before God. And the hope is that the actions taken by the community, such as delivering this man to Satan, catalyze genuine repentance and faith in the Lord that the man might be saved when Jesus Christ returns on the day of judgment. Egregious, unrepentant patterns of sin indicate unbelief in God, even if you call yourself a Christian or participate in Christian community. Church discipline, along the lines of what we're discussing here, is therefore intended to expose that reality with prayerful hope that God might be pleased to open your eyes on account of this discipline for the sake of true repentance and belief in salvation. I told you this was a love sermon. In disciplining this man, I'm serious. The Corinthians, think about who they were loving. They were loving their neighbors. They were loving their own church family. They were loving this man's father, this man's stepmom, and they were loving this man. And if you don't believe me, take it from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor and author who opposed the Nazi regime ultimately at the cost of his life. This is from his book, Life Together, which is by far the best book I've ever read on the nature of Christian community. It's like 80 pages. Buy it and read it today. He says this. He says, Reproof is unavoidable. God's word demands it when a brother falls into open sin. Where defection from God's word in doctrine or life imperils the family fellowship and with it the whole congregation, the word of admonition and rebuke must be ventured. Now check this out. Nothing can be more cruel than the tenderness that consigns another to his sin. Do you catch that? Nothing can be more cruel than the so-called tenderness that consigns another to his sin. 
And nothing can be more compassionate or loving than the severe rebuke that calls a brother back from the path of sin. Right now, one of the very popular objections to this idea of love through discipline has to do with environmental concerns, a subject that Trevin Wax brought up just this past week in his weekly newsletter. Objectors will say this. You will hear this. We need to deal with it because it's very common. Objectors will say something like this. Well, what about this man's environment, you know? Maybe he had a very difficult home life. He had a rough childhood. His immoral actions may not really be his fault, so maybe what he really needs is, is mercy. Now you're, you know, you're kicking him out of the church. Fyodor Dostoevsky dealt with this very subject in an essay that he called Environment. I'll let Trevin Wax's summary of this essay speak for itself. He says this, Dostoevsky described the state of Russian juries that exhibited a mania for acquittal. He mentions a peasant recently acquitted after brutally beating his spouse in front of their daughter. The man's humiliating treatment of his wife was sadistic. I will spare you the details. The jury found the peasant guilty of the crimes, yet still recommended clemency. Why? Because the poor peasant must be understood in context as a product of his environment. It was the backwardness, ignorance, the environment, ultimately responsible for his egregious behavior. Therefore, the jury said to show this peasant mercy, and his daughter was returned to him. Dostoevsky was completely appalled. How could environment alone explain such behavior? He said, after all, millions of peasants in poverty don't treat their wives this way, he said. What kind of mercy is this? Yes, we can acknowledge and account for someone's social environment and circumstances when considering their wrongdoing. The environment absolutely matters, but it isn't merciful to reduce someone's choices to their environment or upbringing. This kind of mercy dehumanizes the sinner, removes moral agency, and reduces one's choices to social formation. By contrast, Christianity and holding people responsible for their actions ennobles the sinner. Christianity affirms the value of human life and the reality of human freedom. Holding someone accountable is an aspect of showing mercy, of saying, you are a man and not a beast. And that's the kind of mercy we show as a church of Jesus Christ. Not the passive, dehumanizing, let's not step on any toes, he probably just needs a hug kind of posture that masquerades as mercy. So in other words, here's how we're going to put this. If you're a member here at City Church and you start running away from Jesus, in love and boldness, we're going to run after you. Because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So we run after those who are running away from Jesus, even putting them out of the church, if necessary. Because we know where true life is found. So how could we sit on our hands? I cannot imagine anything more cruel than the so-called tenderness of inactivity in the face of waywardness. Think of church discipline as something like a smoke detector 
which by the way, those are becoming really sophisticated. I found out apparently smoke detectors can now just contact the fire department on your behalf. I saw one advertised recently and it had a 15 day money back guarantee, which feels like a really dark selling point. Do they mean like send it back if you don't like the aesthetic of it? Like, you know, I didn't, I installed it, I didn't love what this did, you know, for my living room or are we talking about in the next 15 days if there's a fire at your residence and you don't feel as though this detector provides sufficient detection? I mean, give us a call. We'll make it right. Is that, I mean, what are we talking about? Back to the main point, though. Smoke detectors, they're uncomfortable. They are painful. They make this loud, really shrill noise. Sometimes they even start chirping in the middle of the night because the battery is low and unfortunately all you can do at that point is take out a hammer and smash it. But the loud shrill noise is meant to save your life. It's meant to bring you out of harm's way that you might live. And should we disable the smoke detectors because they annoy us and are occasionally inconvenient, that decision might kill us. Church discipline can be so uncomfortable and painful and really inconvenient, but spiritually speaking, it saves lives. And it protects those being harmed by the actions of unrepentant sinners. So much damage has persist in the life of various local churches because leaders have been inactive and unwilling to confront sin and then people run around hurting people. We don't have a lot of time for this, but let me at least give you a brief picture of what church discipline looks like in real life, at least some very broad principles, and that brings us to our second reflection briefly here, the practice of discipline. In verses 9 and 10, Paul makes a clarification that in his previous letter to the Corinthians, which we don't have a record of today, he told them not to associate with sexually immoral people. However, he was not referring to the sexually immoral or the greedy or the idolaters of this world. For then, as Christ followers, we have to isolate ourselves socially and culturally, which is not what Paul is calling for, and that will become more clear throughout this letter. What he is saying, verses 11 through 13, is that the Corinthian believers should not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother or sister, that is, a professing believer in your church, if he or she is guilty of any kind of ongoing, unrepentant immorality, whether it be sexual or related to greed, idolatry, reviling, drunkenness, swindling, you name it. In fact, the Corinthian believers shouldn't even share a meal with someone like that, including communion or any other kind of meal. So he's not telling Corinthian believers, or by extension, any believers, past, present, or future, to socially withdraw. That's not what he's saying. And he's not telling Corinthian believers to walk around Corinth, you know, kind of calling moral balls and strikes. He's not asking us to hang out at a downtown bar, and then when someone has their third beer in under an hour, be all like, you're on your way to drunkenness. You know, that is a strike. That's not what he's saying. And you can see in verse 13, Paul says, God is the one who judges outsiders. He is saying that we're to be disciplining and ultimately removing, if absolutely necessary, professing Christians who are part of our church fellowship if they are running away from Jesus. Particularly, as is the thrust of this passage, if they are living in ongoing and unrepentant sin. 
Removing someone from membership should be the very last step in the process, though. There is clearly much to be done before that, which Jesus gets into in the book of Matthew, chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two brothers along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, remove that person. So the practice of church discipline begins with individuals within the life of a church bringing private warnings or admonitions to one another when they believe their brothers or sisters are in sin. And if that doesn't resolve the sin issues, or the grievances, you bring someone with you the next time, either a fellow congregant or potentially an elder if the matter is particularly serious. And if that doesn't resolve things, you take the issue to the elders of the church or whatever the spiritual leaders of the church are called. And if that doesn't resolve things, the elders may take the person engaged in unrepentant sin to the members of the church for potential removal from membership, and then in extreme cases from the church entirely, Usually if that person appears to be an active danger to people in the church, you can imagine those kinds of scenarios. Different churches and different denominations have various kinds of church polity and therefore different kinds of practices when it comes to church discipline. It's important to know that. But at City Church, the members would have to approve or not approve removal of fellow members upon recommendation by the elders. The elders couldn't just do that unilaterally. And then along the way, and this is really important, we are prayerfully avoiding two ditches. Number one, we're avoiding passive inactivity because we don't want to rock the boat or be judgmental or whatever. And then number two, we're avoiding heavy-handedness or any behavior that has to do with shaming, as we talked about last week, instead of admonishing. Shaming is not church discipline. Shaming is just abuse. It's not restorative. Here's what I want us to focus on, though, as we end. You see how all of this starts small. With brothers and sisters in Christ being willing to address sin in the body when they sin it, when they see it. And let me be really honest. If you stay at City Church for any length of time, you will both sin and be sinned against. And when that happens, we're going to need to be able to talk to one another, repenting when necessary, and showing forgiveness. Our church will fail in the practice of all church discipline unless we attend to the small things first. So we don't gossip, we don't stew when we have grievances or when someone sins against us, instead we pick up the phone and we call the person we're out of sorts with or we meet with them in person or whatever. And keep in mind that other people might call you too. <laughs> so a question. Are we willing to speak truth to our friends in love? Even if it costs you something. Is there any truth you need to speak now, this week, 
Has there been truth spoken to you that you have disregarded because of your stubbornness and pride that you need to reconsider and respond to? Let me close with this. This is really hard. such an uncomfortable subject. But isn't there some richness and some vibrancy to what we're talking about? Church communities are messy, but they aren't flat. There's texture, there's thickness, there's, there's real meaning that's different than the kinds of ways people have community out in the world. And last thing, I, I made a comment about church discipline. Sometimes it has been done in such an awful, and I would say even evil, heavy-handed way. Some of you may well have been affected by that, seen it yourselves, been directed at you. Number one, I am sorry. I know about these kinds of reports. I know this does intersect with some of your stories. But similar to what I talked about last week, just because there's been harmful iterations of something does not mean that God cannot still use the right practice to bless his church. I just saw, thankfully in the life of City Church, we haven't really had to do church discipline along the lines of removing someone in our 10 years, which is just God's mercy to us. I hope it stays that way. But I did see a, a story from another pastor recently where he said he, uh, they had to do some church discipline of this guy, they, they, this is not his real name, but they named him Jack for the story, who was in some unrepentant, very severe sin um, related to alcohol and some other sexual things. And eventually people in the church congregation confronted him and said, this, uh, we're really concerned about this. He was a member of their church. They did all the steps, the private admonition, and then they brought somebody, and then eventually went to the elders. They worked with this guy for like a year, I mean a really long time. And eventually it got to the point where he wasn't willing to hear it. And he said, no, I'm going to persist in doing exactly what I'm doing. And so they did have to remove him from membership. And then eventually he moved to another city, and they kind of lost touch with him. Six years later, he comes back. Now he's married. He has a couple of kids. And he comes to the the staff of the church and he says, thank you. You basically saved my life. You called me out on things that I wasn't paying attention to. And God used that to heal that, to heal me and to restore me. You hear all kinds of awful, evil things in the media about church discipline gone wrong. You don't often hear about the beautiful stories. And so I wanted to leave you with that in this.